0: The Gerontological Society of America Momentum Discussions. Welcome to the Momentum Discussion Podcast Series, where researchers, educators, and practitioners stimulate dialogue on trends with great momentum to advance gerontology. Welcome to the podcast of the Gerontological Society of America. I'm your host, Judith Illish, Director of Strategic Alliances at the Society. This is one of three podcasts we're hosting with healthcare leaders on the topic of dementia related psychosis, which is a behavioral and psychological symptom of dementia. The topic is complex and multi layered. So we'll focus this particular discussion on the impact of dementia related psychosis on residents in long term care. Now, I'm delighted to introduce my guest, Chad wars, Executive Director and Chief Operating Officer for the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, otherwise known as ASCP. Dr. Wars is a member of GSA's Clinical Workgroup on Dementia Related Psychosis, and he also contributed to a new GSA report released on the topic that was published in February 2021. Dr. Wars, welcome.
1: Thanks, Judith. Happy to be here.
0: Before we get into today's topic, could you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and what ASCP does in the healthcare field?
1: Absolutely. ASCP stands for American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. It's an organization that is over 50 years old, and probably at its inception, it was independent community pharmacies that saw an opportunity to provide medications into these developing skilled nursing home environments that were popping up in the late 60s. So they reached out to those facilities and and wanted to provide medication services and found themselves in an environment that required a lot of innovation. So we saw a lot of early packaging Uh, improvements that were made by pharmacists that participated in um, providing meds to long-term care facilities. And then ultimately that evolved into an overall medication management um, approach that long-term care pharmacies and subsequently pharmacists that were referred to as consultant pharmacists provided to uh, a growing industry. And, And that industry has obviously expanded on Um, over that 50 years to include assisted living. And even today, we're seeing pharmacists starting to be embedded to physicians' clinics and physicians' offices where those physicians are caring for a predominantly older population. So ASCP works to provide education, opportunity, and resources to those pharmacists practicing in those different senior care environments. That's
0: wonderful and much needed. And I know that GSA has Appreciated the the leadership of organizations like ASCP and times like these, um, and and you're a pharmacist by background as well, correct?
1: Yes, I'm a pharmacist. I I started in this industry right out of college, um, and that was you know about 20 years ago. Um, I would say when I came into the space, um, you you know you got two reactions from people. One was, wow, you've given up your career to work with uh, people in nursing homes, or you got This guy probably finished last in his class. and Now he has to go work in nursing homes. But the reality is, is that nursing homes have really evolved over the last 20 years. And uh, if you think about the growth in the population, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day in this country. We're going to go from a population that is in the uh, 20 million range right now to a 60 million range in another 20 years so we're seeing an incredible growth in people that are over the age of 65 and in each segment of those older adults those segments are growing. So the over 80 segment of the population is the fastest growing segment of the fastest growing segment of people over the age of 65. And that puts a lot of pressure on the healthcare environment because skilled nursing facilities are pretty much the same number that they've been in the last 25 years. So with a limited number of parking places and a growing number of cars, essentially, that are older adults, what, what ends up happening in long-term care is a, a very dramatic shift toward more acutely ill individuals. You see a much more transitional population of people that have been hospitalized and are recovering before they go back home. And then you see a growing population of individuals that have reached a point that they can't be cared for at home. And typically they have conditions uh, like advanced dementia, psychosis, um and they end up being uh, a large part of the growing population of nursing facilities. So we've experienced that uh, over the last twenty years. We will continue to experience that, and that's what puts a lot of pressure on us in long-term care to come up with better solutions.
0: I'm I'm glad you described all these population changes and shifts that are happening within the industry, because I think, uh, for at least from a public perspective, there's been sort of a monolithic view of what long-term care is. It's just where Older adults, 65 and older, who can't take care of themselves go. So, I think, of course, the pandemic has brought a lot more visibility to nursing home residents and their unique needs, and the fact that they have experienced such higher mortality and social isolation than the rest of us. And so, tell me more about the pandemic's impact on this this specific population within long term care the residents with dementia. Because I think that yeah. hasn't received as much.
1: No, it hasn't, and I like your ten dollar word, monolithic, because I always use the word homogenous to describe how people generally look at the skilled nursing home world. Is they think it's just this place that people that are hard to care for go when they get older, and the reality is, is they're they're very different. Even within skilled nursing, you can have facilities that are. Um, specifically taking care of rehab patients. You have facilities that specialize in patients that have psychosis. In assisted living, it's even more broad. You have places that look like older adult apartment complexes with limited nursing intervention, and then you have memory care units, which are locked and designed to take care of people that have cognitive disorders uh, that don't quite have maybe the physical comorbidities that might push them into skilled nursing. So when we have a pandemic and COVID starts to hit and it starts to target that very uh, older population in terms of the burden that it's placed on the country, you have to fight that battle of these aren't all the same out there. We have to apply resources to recognize that there are very different nursing homes. There are very different assisted living facilities. And then overall, the people that live there are very different than the person you might see that that walks into a corner drugstore to, to ask for a vaccine that might be over the age of 65. So really putting... Um, you know, your education hat on from the standpoint of an association and a number of us in this industry have had to do this to explain what we're dealing with so that the vaccine programs that are out there, the getting the monoclonal antibody treatments, into skilled nursing facilities that are available to them, that they go in with an understanding of what they're what they're walking into. Um, these are not individuals that are going to get in line, mask up, socially distance, and wait to get their vaccine. A lot of them aren't going to leave their their room. A lot of them have cognitive issues and and issues with psychosis. They're not going to understand why they have to mask or why they have to socially distant. And that creates a strain on the activity that you're trying to provide. And if you don't have that education when you walk in there, then you're not going to have allocated enough time. You're not going to have allocated enough uh, infection control uh, equipment and procedures, and it's going to not go as well as, as you would have liked it to go. So the pandemic has really put a focus on that. And even further to your point about uh, isolation and dementia we know that you know from our history that use it or lose it is one of the things that coincides with dementia that that people that use their mind and exercise their brain have dementia occur in less percentage than than individuals that don't well imagine that you're in a nursing home now and you haven't been able to leave your room you don't get to eat um, dinner or lunch or breakfast with the other people living in your facility. You're not allowed to accept visitors. The only person you see on a routine basis is, is the nurse that might be bringing medications to you. Activities are, are pulled back Um you're putting patients really in a tough spot because their their stimulation is, is gone. They don't have people to talk to. They don't have activities to do. And that has a, a very tremendous impact on those that have dementia. It causes a, an increase in progression of their dementia. And ultimately, it's probably associated with some degree of, of increased mortality in that population.
0: But to segue back to the experience of someone with dementia who is experiencing psychosis layered on top of their dementia so as a symptom what what can care teams within facilities do to to care for them to to address their needs
1: well there's there's a number of ways and and we've evolved these ways again i, I think i mentioned at the top of the show you know this is a very dynamic population that we're dealing with. It's changing every day. Um, in some ways, it's providing us the experience to approach people that have dementia and the, and the dementia that is progressing into psychosis. In other ways, they're coming into the facilities faster and there, there are more of them than there were five years ago, 10 years ago. So it's it's trying to balance all that, but the reality is, is, we have some non-pharmacologic approaches that can help people manage uh, those symptoms that they're having when their dementia starts to deteriorate into a to a psychotic feature, um, and we have some medications that we can use that also uh, help um, with those symptoms and and quell some of those uh, behaviors and psychotic features that they might be experiencing. Uh, the hard part is, is that everybody's different, so they're they're not. Um, sort of emerging into certain categories where it makes it easy for us to say, okay, do this. Um, The do this is almost as unique as the individual. Maybe in some... Uh, patients cases it's uh, you know it's settling them down and sitting next to them and and having a conversation maybe that works from a non-pharmacologic perspective uh, in other cases it may progress to the point that it's so psychotic that it represents a, a harm to them or to other people and medications become a more uh, appropriate way to to address their issues the important piece of all that is that we have to do that in a very appropriate way and we have to make sure that we're monitoring their behaviors and, and symptoms so that if we do perform an intervention, whether it's non-pharmacologic or pharmacologic, we're tracking it. And we can make claims to say, well, they were doing this activity 30 times last month. We we started this intervention and this month it's down to 11. That's good progress. Let's continue along those lines. So if we're doing that kind of documentation and, and assessment, uh, then we're making sure that we're keeping people um, safe and providing the best opportunity to address their individual issues.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the non-pharmacological approaches, which I think many GSA members are uh, deep into the research in that field. And there is, you know, strong focus on how to first prioritize these approaches and deliver person-centered care for residents. But it seems like psychosis and dementia, as opposed to other psychiatric conditions that perhaps... Sometimes those approaches have their limitations or we just don't have the available evidence. Um, So has has that been, I guess, in the absence of available approaches or available staff, what what does good practice from a medication management perspective look like?
1: Well, I think think you bring up a a number of great points and it, it all kind of aims itself back at doing a good job evaluating the individual that you have in front of you from a from the perspective of how to treat. Uh, and again, you know, it sounds cliche, but we're all different. Everybody's different. There are going to be things that work for some individuals that don't work with others. I think where we get wrapped around the axle of non-pharmacologic approaches is that we we want them to be the panacea of solution. And the reality is, is, is they're not. They're, they don't have a lot of great evidence. Um, they tend to be very specific to the person that you're taking care of. So on one hand, we, we definitely always want to try to alleviate somebody's symptoms or, or issues with a non-pharmacologic approach before we go to a medication. But a lot of times it's, it's not possible. And sometimes those non-pharmacologic approaches might be supportive to medication. Sometimes they may not be effective and and we have to go uh, immediately to a medication. A lot of that has to do with doing a good job diagnosing and documenting the kind of issues that the patient's having. When they have psychotic features, at that point, it probably is unrealistic to think that a non-pharmacologic approach is going to work. When they have the beginning phases of behaviors associated with with a progressing dementia, there may be a number of non-pharmacologic interventions that are effective and, and we should pursue and use those. But everybody's different and we have to understand they're all on a continuum. And at some point, um, if they continue to progress and they have those psychotic features that that are harmful, we're probably going to end up moving toward medication therapy as a potential solution.
0: What do you think are some of the barriers to providing individualized and person-centered care in the long-term care setting for someone with dementia-related psychosis?
1: Yeah, so I think barriers uh, as it relates to caring for people in this environment with these conditions is, you know, the progression that we're we're seeing the the changes. So I mentioned earlier, you know, ten years ago, the people that would arrive at a nursing facility were a little bit more broad in terms of the issues that brought them here. Some people, um, incontinence, was a driver of getting to the nursing home. Some couldn't handle their the sophistication of their diabetes regimen, so they were ending up in the nursing home. And then you had some that were developing the dementias and the psychosis. Now you're getting a lot more individuals that are in that dementia, psychosis kind of uh, arena that are populating the nursing home. So on one hand, we're kind of dealing with a little bit of a a wave uh, and trying to make sure that all of the care um, staff and approaches that we have keep up with the changes in the patient population. Um, so that has to be considered. The second is the emergence and in the, in the investment that uh, people are putting in coming up with solutions. So those are changing every day. And are we keeping people educated and trained? Do we know what the best um, non farm approaches are because of the most recent research? Do we know what the best medications are because of the most recent research? So we're kind of trying to to make sure that we stay on top of what contemporary Uh, solutions are in a very rapidly changing environment. And that's difficult. So I think if we're looking at what the challenges are, they they kind of surround those two pieces.
0: From your perspective, what regulatory policies are shaping clinical care in the long-term care setting?
1: Well, I think it's similar to what we see on the clinician end, is that we have a very Dynamic environment and regulations are always put in place to try to monitor or correct sort of the direction of care at a, at a nursing facility as a as a pretty strong example, and they become quickly outdated. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that the current regulatory environment is outdated, but um, the ability for us to to evolve those regulations to fit what we're dealing with in skilled nursing facilities is a challenge. It's a challenge for Congress. It's a challenge for our regulatory agencies. It's a challenge for condition, for the clinicians. So trying to provide uh, an ability to continue to feedback information to regulatory agencies and into Congress about what's working and what's not working what the impact of regulation might be having on care is a key component of what we provide at ASCP. It's certainly a a component of what you provide at GSA and and the other organizations that work in the older adult space is trying to, to be that balance of, okay, well, this is a good idea. We should focus on it, but maybe we need to tweak the regulation a little bit to more to better reflect what we're after um, in a nursing facility in terms of a change in in their behavior or a change in in their approach. Um, And I think that's what we spend a lot of time doing is trying to fit what's going on in practice, what's emerging, what dynamic we're seeing, and fit how it relates to regulation and how we could improve it. From ASCP's perspective, we're looking at how regulation and policy influences the care of patients in nursing facilities, in assisted living facilities, and how consultant pharmacists and pharmacists that are in senior care can impact that policy and impact that care in a in a positive way. I think one of the ways, and I mentioned it earlier in the program, uh, is looking at those two dynamics that we know are a struggle. We've got that rapidly um, changing environment of what skilled nursing looks like from a patient population standpoint, and we have that emerging dynamic and evidence that's coming out every day that's providing uh, influence over what we should be doing from a care perspective. So, you know, education, training, uh, making sure we're directing uh, staff the right way, those kinds of issues and their impact on policy and care are things that we try to emphasize at ASCP. Um, A lot of the the nitty-gritty of working in a nursing facility has to do with um, regulations, has to do with metrics. Um, one of the things that's that's always been part of the role of the consultant pharmacist is a gradual dose reduction, which um, it sounds very intuitive, sounds uh, appropriate that anytime we start a medication, if things are going well, we should automatically move to a lower dose and move to a lower dose until ultimately maybe uh, the patient doesn't need the medication anymore. And that's been a long standing uh, role of a consultant pharmacist is to identify those GDR opportunities and present them to the prescribing clinicians uh, and the team that's taking care of the individual. Um, and those are, those are fine. Those are great. But there's some level of Um, mandated approach to those that makes it difficult for clinicians in practice, because there are conditions that are out there that are chronic and progressive. And ultimately, the dose that you start on might actually increase over time as your um, condition deteriorates. So that makes it difficult to kind of fall into that um, GDR structure that exists. So one of the big policy issues is, is how do we Uh, work with agencies and work with Congress on on policy issues that recognize that good, appropriate treatment may mean we acknowledge that a GDR is due, but we don't do it. That we recognize the person because of their diagnosis, because of their condition is better off maintaining the dose that they have or even increasing the dose that they have um, to alleviate their symptoms and and to improve their quality. So that's one area. Um, I think the other area kind of gets to that component of education, which is, can we drill down in in terms of documentation and clinical uh, activity to the right diagnosis? Do we have the tools available to get to this individual person's array of diagnosis? And what does that say about the medications that we're using to treat them or the approach that we're taking to treat them? And making sure that those Uh, systems are in place that allow us to get to that right diagnosis. And that has a lot to do with ICD-9 codes, ICD-10 codes, um, the way we articulate our documentation that is surveyable by um, CMS and some of the agencies so that we do a good job documenting and we therefore uh, address policy issues and care issues within the rules that are out there from a regulatory perspective. So that's how we kind of look at policy is trying to be that buffer between what are the regs? And what is the um, cadence around the regs that agencies and Congress is having? And how do we make that work in the very practical, on-the-ground environment that is skilled nursing facilities and sort of bridge that distance between um, what they need and what maybe uh, we want to measure at a, at a federal um, standpoint?
0: That, that's really well put. So for uh, could, could you bring us down one level, like? Going from back to back to that individual provider who's trying to care for that individual resident and that resident who has dementia-related psychosis, since that's something both our societies have collaborated on as a topic, um, what what does um, the unintended consequence, as as you seem to be suggesting, of a GBR look like on on a case like that?
1: So, I think for a long time, I think most clinicians would agree with this, that we look at dementia as a progressive condition. It, it continues to get worse. I remember um, learning about the medications that we would use to treat people with Alzheimer's dementia, and the analogy that was always given to us was, well, this is like, this is like Rogaine for men that are losing their hair. In other words, if you start using Rogaine when you still have hair you'll keep your hair. If you stop using Rogaine at any point, you're going to lose your hair back to when you would have lost it had you never been on the Rogaine. So if you... Stop taking Rogaine. Your hair falls out. Well, Rogaine's not going to bring your hair back if you decide later. Wait, Rogaine was a good was a good thing. I'm going to restart it. It doesn't work that way. And a lot of people feel that way about dementia that if you provide some treatments that are working for patients that have dementia, whether they progress to psychosis or not, that ultimately you're you're giving them a parachute that allows their progression to slow down and that they move more slowly over that Typical continuum of their of their dementia or their dementia with psychosis, and if you pull the med away because you had to do a gradual dose reduction, and things deteriorate, you might not be able to reinstitute that med and get them back to where they were. That's true of dementia. That's true of dementia with psychosis. If we've got them in a position where we're maintaining some level of control, sometimes a GDR can disrupt that and make it more difficult for us to get them back uh, to where they were before. Sometimes it works. And I think that's the difficult piece of this is that clinicians are put in the position of trying to make good decisions. If they're documenting, if they're understanding that patient at a, a deep level of their diagnosis, a deep understanding of the way things have been reactive from a therapy approach to them from the beginning, I think we generally make good decisions. Uh, when you're forced from outside forces to do things you may not agree with because of a regulation or because you know the, the book says you have to do this, then that's when we get into um, some uncharted waters and some risk. Um, so being able to communicate those Issues back and forth between agencies and, and to individual clinicians is, is part of what we do at ASCP and part of what we're continuing to do to try to shape policy.
0: I think that clinical analogy really helps illustrate just how much nuance there that is involved in making treatment decisions for residents with dementia. I hate to end this discussion, but we are out of time. So would you have any final words for our listeners?
1: I think the one thing that we've learned, and and honestly I can broaden this out to even our experience with COVID-19 and and our approaches to COVID-19, is that ultimately healthcare is local and the individual clinician working on a team, taking care of an individual patient is going to have the most information and the most ability to have an impact on that patient's quality and, and their care. And using all available resources Understanding as deeply as, as you have time and as deeply as you can to what's going on with that patient is, is the direction that we need to be going with healthcare in this country. We need that kind of intimate approach to decisions, especially when we're talking about uh, things like dementia and things like psychosis that are very advanced, very sophisticated. We don't have wonder drugs that, that can treat these. Uh, we don't have wonder approaches or wonder non-farm approaches that can treat these yet. We have to get down to that level of that individual and find out what things might work from a tool belt of things that work. So, you know, my closing statement would be that is, is to really remember you're always sitting in front of a patient and what does that particular patient need and, and do the right thing, document um, and, um, In the end will will take care of people
0: thank you dr wars for sharing your insights on what is truly a complex topic this wraps up our episode thank you for listening and please tune in to our other gsa podcasts on dementia related psychosis goodbye for now to learn more about the gerontological society of america visit geron.org the gerontological society of america was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit GERON.org.